You want to follow along, we're reading from Luke's Gospel, um, from the uh, English Standard Version. Um, Pastor Cliff, uh, yesterday I was on the internet, and um, I don't remember what the website was, but there was a list of 200 English translations of the Bible that came up. I have some of them, but there are some that I'd never heard of before. But uh, we are blessed to be able to come into this place, and I am honored to be able to Uh, read with you from God's Word. Beginning in uh, chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, They sat Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, What that you, even you, had known on this day, the things that make for peace, But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your salvation. morning. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So today is Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Traditionally, this is seen as as really the height of Jesus's earthly ministry. As Charlie just read for us, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the holy city. He enters riding on a young donkey, the colt, the foal, of a donkey. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah ch- chapter 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He enters as king, but he comes riding on a donkey demonstrating his humility. 
The people honor him. They spread their cloaks before him on the road. They rejoice and praise God for his arrival. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is the traditional Palm Sunday. It's right and it's good. Jesus is being exalted as he should be. However, there's something else going on here. There's something deeper. But the people don't see it. They're welcoming the one they believe will free them from the oppression of Rome. They're cheering for their Messiah, their Deliverer. The one who they believe will set up a a Jewish kingdom in Jerusalem and rule with mercy and, and justice. They're picturing one who will drive out the Romans like King David drove out the Philistines. An earthly, political, warrior king. But Jesus knew the truth of the matter. He knew what would take place in less than a week. You got the timeline here? Palm Sunday, Good Friday, the crucifixion. He knew that some of these same people would be shouting something very different in just a few days. So you can can see how this would create such tension in his heart, such emotional tension. Let me try to illustrate... I believe Jesus is probably feeling that that first Palm Sunday. To help us enter into the moment, I have have two illustrations I I want to share with you. First is a a story written by John Piper. Then is a, a painting by Rembrandt. First, the story. I want you to imagine a scene with me. There's a young doctor who has a wife and three small children. He volunteers to take a dangerous six-month mission assignment. The place he goes is suffering an an epidemic from a rare disease. There's also a good deal of hostility from the local people toward anyone who's from outside. He takes the assignment because nobody else is qualified. No one else has his training, and no one else was willing to go. The months pass slowly. The kids really begin to miss their dad. The wife misses her husband. Then the day of his return approaches and the whole family is full of excitement. Mom has butterflies in her tummy and the kids run around the house shouting, Daddy's coming home! Daddy's coming home! At three o'clock in the afternoon, a, a taxi pulls into the driveway. The kids run out. They run out the front door, followed by Mom. Her heart is beating so hard she can, she can feel it. The back door of the cab opens and, and out steps Dad. He's thinner. Then when he left, he has a beard covering the hollows of his cheeks. But on his face, he wears a a big smile. He kneels down on the grass and is is smothered with six six arms and and legs. Hooray for Daddy! Daddy's home! Each each child gets a special hug and kiss while Mom waits. Finally, he, he pulls himself together and they embrace. Welcome home. Good to be back. Sorry, I know what's coming here, sorry. Now I want you to look into the young doctor's eyes because there's a message there. And if you can see it and feel it, you'll know something of what Jesus felt as he rode into Jerusalem to shouts of welcome and acclamation. What you can see in the doctor's eyes is something he knows that his family doesn't know. 
He caught the disease. He went to heal. And he has one week to live. That's the story. Now the painting. This is a, a painting is, is believed to be by Rembrandt and is titled The Head of Christ. It's, it's captivating in many ways. I, I stared at it a lot this, this past week. If you cover Christ's left eye, this face has a, a sparkle of, of joy and hope. Maybe you can see it. But if you cover his right eye, he looks like he's, he's about to cry. More sadness and emotion. And if you look at both eyes, you can see both emotions. First one, then the other, then both mingled. It's, it's a beautiful and, and yet tragic expression. Rembrandt has, has captured something very profound, I believe. Something about Jesus. Jesus lived with, with great tension. With this great tension in his heart between joy and sadness. The author of Hebrews captures the tension in in chapter 12, verse 2, as he writes, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of doing his Father's will. The joy of reconciling man to God. But the sadness, the endurance of the cross. He that knew no sin would take on our sin, would submit to the wrath of God deserved for you and I. Knowing that for the most part, his people would reject him and suffer eternal damnation. This is what he's feeling on Palm Sunday. In the one eye, you see the the sparkle. Yes, you have it right. I am the king. I am the one who comes in the, the name of the Lord. Jerusalem is my city. You are my subjects. But in the other eye, you, you see a tear. You will reject me. There will be no rain in Jerusalem, no peace, no justice, no coronation day. At least not for now. Dad reference, this is, this is a picture. of It will one day at the second coming when Jesus comes to fulfill his role completely as king. But at this point, Jesus understood I have one week to live. I hope those illustrations help you to understand what Jesus is going through on that first Palm Sunday. He enters Jerusalem to cheers and praise. Only the Pharisees, as usual, are trying to put a damper on the party. They don't like it that people are praising Jesus. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus will have none of this. Not today. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Something's going on here. Something wonderful and something tragic. It's wonderful that the crowds are rightly cheering for their king. Jesus will not put a stop to that. But there's also something tragic. Those those cheering for him don't really know him. They don't understand his purpose. And in less than a week, some of them will call for his crucifixion. And Jesus knows this. He hears the appropriate cheers of praise, but he knows that they'll turn to cries for his death. The subjects of the king, the subjects of the king of kings and the Lord of lords will rebel and he'll be crucified. So on Palm Sunday, as he approaches Jerusalem, what will he do? 
What will he say? How will he respond? We find our answer in the final verses that Charlie read for us this morning, verses 41 to 44, and that's really what I want to focus on this morning. The section begins with verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Jesus didn't weep for himself. No self-pity in our Savior. He wept for Jerusalem. Clearly, there's great emotion stirring in his heart. The crowds are cheering, but Jesus is weeping. What follows in verses 42 through 44 are the words that explain the tears. The reason for his weeping is that terrible judgment is coming on Jerusalem and its people. According to verses 43 and 44, Jerusalem, the temple, will be leveled by its enemies. They will not leave one stone upon another, and its people will be torn down to the ground. They're expecting this new messianic kingdom, and Jesus knows long, it's all going to be leveled. But there's more. Jesus, I don't believe, is is just weeping because Jerusalem and its people will be destroyed. He's weeping because of why it will be destroyed. What's the reason? Jesus says it. It's because of the ignorance of its people. They're ignorant of, of two things specifically. In verse 42, he says, they don't know the things that make for peace. They don't know the things that make for peace. And in verse 44, he says, they don't know the time of their visitation. Let's look at those. Let's look at them in reverse order. Let's begin with verse 44, examining the fact that Jesus wept because Jerusalem was ignorant of their visitation. Judgment is coming to Jerusalem. Why? Verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Charlie, when he read it, I don't know why he did this, but he changed that last word to salvation. As you'll see, that's very appropriate. What is this visitation? In the Old Testament, the term visitation was used for God's visiting, God's coming to his people. And God comes for two reasons. Either to judge or to save. For example, in in Isaiah 29, verses 5 and 6, the prophet says to a, a rebellious people, and in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and an earthquake and great noise and a whirlwind and a tempest and the flame of devouring fire. Not sure I want to be there to answer the door for that visit. That's a visitation of judgment. But in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, Joseph says to his brothers in Egypt, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We know about that, don't we? The promise of the land as we study the life of Abraham. So the Exodus, this big event, God's deliverance of his people from Egypt was a visitation, not for judgment, but for salvation. So now, which type, so which type of visitation is, is Luke referring to? If we look at the two other places where Luke uses that term visitation in his gospel, we see that he's, he's clearly speaking of that visitation of God to save his people. He's clearly speaking of their salvation. 
specifically to save them through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. In, in Luke 1.68, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesies about Jesus and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed, saved his people. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 16, after Jesus was ra- had raised up a, the widow's son, a widow's son from the dead. Luke says of the people of that village, that village of Nain, that fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. So when Jesus says to the people of Jerusalem, you did not know the time of your visitation, he means you did not know my coming is the coming of God for your salvation. They were ignorant that God in Jesus Christ had come to save them from their sin. They were ignorant of the fact that God in Jesus Christ had come to save them to an eternal relationship with Him. They were God's chosen people, but were, for the most part, oblivious to what was going on. Their ignorance of what God is doing is is a common theme in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 12, verse 54 through 56, we read, he also said to the crowds, Jesus speaking to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Why don't you know how to interpret what's happening through me, in and through me? They didn't know that Jesus had come to give them eternal salvation. They thought he had come to save them from Rome. They were happy with that. But he had come to save them from their sin. They didn't want to deal with that. They were overjoyed that he would deliver them from Rome but they were not willing to face the fact that they they needed to be delivered from themselves, from their own sinful self. So it's clear that on Palm Sunday, the people were ignorant of the time of their visitation. They were ignorant of, of why Jesus came. And so it follows that Jesus also wept because Jerusalem was ignorant of the terms of peace. Our second point. In verse 42, Jesus says... Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. The things that make for peace. Jesus is expressing a desire that they would have known the things that that made for peace. What are these things that make for peace? There's one other place in Luke where the same phrase is used. Things that make for peace. It occurs in in a parable in Luke chapter 14. Verses 31 and 32. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and first and deliberate down first and deliberate whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand, counting the cost, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Terms of peace is the same phrase translated things that make for peace in Luke 19.42. 
They, the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, those who were cheering for Jesus on Palm Sunday, didn't know the terms of peace. So the picture we have, the picture we should have in our mind of Palm Sunday, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, is very different than what we see on the, on the surface. On the surface, they're cheering for their king, but they don't know why their king is coming. They're ignorant of their visitation, why he's visiting them. They don't know that he re- what he requires for peace. They're ignorant of the things that make for peace. They're, in fact, a rebellious people. Jerusalem is a place resistant against God and his rightful authority. And it will suffer a great judgment. Now, you might be thinking, hey, uh, really isn't fair, is it? God can't judge them because they don't have all the information. They're ignorant. Well, first of all, I I wouldn't be so quick to tell God what he can and can't do. But in this case, their ignorance is not due to lack of information. Their ignorance isn't due to lack of information. What do I mean by that? Jerusalem's ignorance was ignore ants. They'll play on words there. Jerusalem's ignorance was ignore ants. When Jesus says they do not know the terms of peace, or when he says they do not know their visitation, he doesn't mean that they've never been given the information. Jesus has made both of these very clear. Probably the clearest declaration in all of Scripture of both his visitation and his terms of peace occurs in the Gospel of John, passage where hopefully very familiar with, John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned. Excuse me. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The visitation is clear. God sent his Son into the world not to condemn, but to save. And the terms of peace are clear. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. They will not perish, but will have eternal life. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. The terms of peace are belief, trust, putting your faith in Jesus Christ. John 3, 16 through 18 is probably the clearest example of how both that visitation and those terms of peace are are spelled out, but but this is is just a recurring theme throughout Jesus' ministry. So they had the necessary information. So what does Jesus mean when he says, Oh, that today you knew the terms of peace, or in verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's using the word know in a different sense than, than, we're usually, than we usually think, than we're used to. But in a sense that's, that's very common in Scripture, so follow with me here. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, is an example of this different kind of using the word know. Listen, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name 
and do what many mighty works in your name. And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus never knew them. Now, Jesus knows everything. He knows everything there is to know about every one of us. So what does he, what does he mean here? I think what he means is, I, I never approved of you. I never acknowledged your rightness. I had never accepted your work. That's the sense in which no is used in, in Luke chapter 19. Oh, that you knew the terms of peace means, oh, that you approved these terms. Oh, that you acknowledged that they were true and right. And that you accepted them. They became the things that governed your life and your conduct. My terms of peace. You didn't know the time of your visitation means you didn't accept me as the king that I am. You want me to be an earthly warrior king. You want me to deal with the Romans, but I'm the king of your heart and your mind and your soul. You didn't accept the salvation that I have come to offer. I've come to save you from your sin, not from the Roman Empire. So the reason Jerusalem is guilty and liable to judgment is not because it never heard of God's visitation or his terms of peace, but because, to use Paul's words in Romans 1.8, they, by their unrighteousness, suppressed the truth. The truth came, they suppressed it. They'd been given the information, but had put it down. They hadn't approved it. They didn't want to hear it. They'd ignored it. That's true ignorance. When you're given all the information you need, but choose in rebellion against God to ignore it. And this is a very dangerous place to be. To have the truth, but to ignore it, to suppress it. And we see what it leads to. Jerusalem's ignorance leads to judgment. The people of Jerusalem had been given all the information and time that they needed. Their true king was in their midst. This is a unique situation. Jesus is is among them. And even though on Palm Sunday it looked like they were receiving him, welcoming him, in reality, they had already rejected him for who he truly was. They had rejected his visitation and they had rejected his terms of peace. And now it's too late. that's That's tough, but that's what it says. Verse 42, oh, that you knew the terms of peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus reveals to us here something very deep about his heart. On the one hand, he expresses his grief. He weeps that Jerusalem has rejected his visitation. Jerusalem has rejected his peace proposal. He weeps. And he cries out, oh, that you knew my visitation. Oh, that you knew my terms of peace. But in the same breath, he bows before the sovereign Lord, the Father of of heaven. God has hidden these things from their eyes. I I don't fully understand that. Sorry. But I'm skeptical of those that say they do. There's a tension here, isn't there? The mind of God, his purposes, his plans, is not a simple thing. If you think it is, you have trouble. God is complex. His mind is above ours. His thoughts are not ours. They're beyond our understanding. 
for the finite creature to believe he can fully understand the infinite creator God is folly. But in Jesus, we get a glimpse into the heart and the mind of God. There are some things we can't know, but there are some things we can hold on to as as truth. From one standpoint, God is not willing. We know the verse, God is not willing that any should perish. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He's grieved by sin and, and its destruction. We see this in his tears for Jerusalem. He's grieved that they'll be destroyed. But from another standpoint, from an all-encompassing perspective, God at some point deems it right to sometimes hide the terms of peace and allow humanity to fall into their own sin and judgment. When he makes that determination, I don't know. That's his to make. And there's a great tension here. And we need to hold it in reverence and in awe. For Jerusalem, that historical form... This is the historical form of their judgment came in 70 A.D. It's described, it's about 40 years later. It's described in verses 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you, Jesus is speaking of Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Forty years. Forty years and this prophecy came true. The Roman army besieged Jerusalem, surrounded it, conquered it, and leveled, it was, it was in rebellion against Rome. And they leveled the temple to the ground. Now I said this is the historical form of God's judgment on Jerusalem because the destruction of the city and even all the loss of physical human life is not the end of the judgment. It's only the beginning. There is an eternal judgment. And I believe above all else that this is why the tears streamed from our Lord's face. No one in the Bible warned of hell as often and as clearly as Jesus Christ did. Maybe because he understood its reality better than than anyone. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus describes hell as a place where the the worm does not die and fire is not quenched. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that, that illustrates, but it illustrates something and it's not positive. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he gives his this this warning to Jerusalem. This warning comes only a few days after Palm Sunday. What I'm going to read in Matthew is is just a few days after Hosanna. He says to the Pharisees, it seems to always be the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 33, I mean, excuse me, 23, verse 33. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is Jesus speaking. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. Maybe no other more uh, sad words in all of Scripture. I, I would gather you in and you would not. You refused me. The prophets had come and and they had kill, were killed and rejected. Jesus had come in humility and mercy. He'd offered terms of peace from God the Father. And they had rejected his offer. They had rejected the, the Son of God. And it was too late for them. We need to understand that there is a too late in dealing with God. I don't know when it is. I can't presume when it is, but, but Jesus did. He may stretch out his wings and call you again and again to come to him to experience His love and grace and His mercy. But there will come a point when He ceases to call and and the sentence is passed and, and then it's too late. How often would I have gathered you under my wings and you would not. Your house is forsaken and desolate. Your ignorance, your ignoring and suppressing the truth will be judged. The terms of peace are now hidden from your eyes. It's over. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of their self-imposed ignorance. Because he knows it will lead to their eternal destruction. So we see the, the tears of, of Jesus for Jerusalem. In this historical event. But we don't, we don't live in Jerusalem. We don't live in the Jerusalem of 2,000 years ago. So how are we to respond to this? What is is this saying to to us? How are we to respond to Jesus' tears for this city? And what we've spoken of this morning is is serious. You know, there's a party going on and Jesus is weeping. It's a serious matter, very sober. And for some, maybe very fearful. But I want to say there's hope. There's hope in Jesus' tears. Because his tears reveal his heart. Heart of compassion, heart of love, heart of gr- heart of grace, heart of, of mercy, heart that isn't willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Luke didn't didn't record these events for us just so we knew about Jerusalem's destruction. It's not a history lesson. He recorded them to warn us not to be ignorant of who Jesus is and what he requires. But he also wrote these things to encourage us that Jesus came to this earth. He visited. Why? That he might save. I came not to to condemn the earth, but that it might be saved through me. And he's always ready and willing to make peace with anyone who will accept his terms of peace. If if you say today, I don't know, maybe it's too late for me. Well, it's never too late if you turn. You turn to Christ and you give your life to him. You know it's not too late. Jesus wept saying, oh, that you would know my visitation. Oh, that today you would know the terms of peace I offer. Oh, that today you would approve and accept who Jesus is, what he came to do, that he came to save us from our worldly troubles, from our sin. 
Oh, that today you would approve and accept Jesus' terms of peace. You see, after Jesus died and rose from the dead and returned to his father's house, he continues, he continued and he continues to make an offer of peace. And you know what? He makes that offer through ambassadors. Paul describes his ministry, Paul's ministry, in 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21 like this. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God visited to save, to reconcile the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing stuff, amazing stuff there. What Christ did for us, and then what he calls those who follow him to do in their world. The verses is just another way of saying, oh, that you would accept God's terms of peace. Be reconciled with God. Accept God's terms of peace. That's the message, the main message of Palm Sunday. The king has come to his rebel subjects and he's offered terms of peace. Terms of peace while while the time lasts, while while there's still time. And his terms of peace are simple. His terms of peace are full and total surrender. No conditional peace with Jesus. Full and total surrender. Lay down your arms, especially your weapons of pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, and humbly admit, I'm defeated. I'm done. Accept the full and free pardon that Jesus offers. Total amnesty. And swear your allegiance to to the new king, the king of your life. There's nothing, nothing more satisfying in this world than to have Jesus as your king. And as his ambassador, I would call you to embrace him for who he truly is. The king who came to, to save you, again, not from your earthly troubles, although He in his love and his grace and his mercy will walk with you every day through every trouble you have. But the king who came to save you from your sin. That's what we need salvation from. From our sin. We have no way of dealing with sin on our own. What does Paul say? We are dead in our sins. How can a dead thing deal with anything? So Jesus dealt with us for us. The king who gave his life as a ransom for many, he paid the price for you and I. He paid a debt that he didn't owe. I owe a debt I I can't pay, the song says. The king who came to seek and to save that which is lost. I would encourage you to accept his terms of peace. Humbly surrender everything to him. Give your life in service and in obedience to Jesus Christ alone. As his ambassador, I beseech you on behalf of Jesus Christ this Palm Sunday to be reconciled to God. That's something you'd like. 
to be reconciled with God. Maybe you're a believer, maybe you're not, or haven't been. I would encourage you today, after our service, if you'd like someone to pray with, someone to talk to, if you just come forward to the, these front pews, there'll be someone here, someone to speak with you, someone to pray with you, someone to guide you. Guide you in what it means to be reconciled to God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, thank you so much for uh, that you're our king. That you're the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Lord. And and we rebel. We continue to rebel, Lord. But you continue to uh, give us your hand. That hand of peace. Father, I pray that we would take it on your terms. We would understand why you came. That you came to save us from our sin. We would understand that you offer us peace. We would rejoice in that and we would fully accept it. And we would be your children. I pray that you would continue to move among us. And if there are those here that don't know you, Father, that haven't given their life to you, haven't surrendered to you, haven't approved of your terms of peace, Father, I pray you would convict their heart today while there's still time, while it's not too late. They too would give their life to Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.